As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to Kotaku Split Screen, the only podcast that self-quarantined before it was cool. It's March 12, 2020, and we've got a whole bunch of video game stuff to talk about. First up, we talk about the games we've been playing. I've been working through Neo 2 and Black Mesa, while Jason and Maddie are both playing Persona 5 Royal, which is fun since Maddie didn't play the game when it first came out. We then talk about the coronavirus-related cancellation of E3 2020 and reflect on the many ways it could impact the games industry and what this all might mean for the year-end games as we thought it was going to happen. We close out with some off-topic discussion of Reply All, I Think You Should Leave, and the excellent third season of Netflix's Castlevania. It's going to be better than the cherry on a whipped cream sundae, so stick around. And welcome back to Kotaku Split Screen. I'm so glad that you've joined us. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and the three of us are coming to you live from our respective virus bunkers around the country. <laughs> I am joined, of course, by my two co-hosts on the left side of my Skype screen, Maddie Myers. Hello, Maddie. Hello. Coming at you from the left. I'm left-handed. Left. It makes a lot of sense. It's why I'm there. <laughs> uh, naturally. And from the right side of my Skype screen... Mr. Jason Schreier. Hello, Jason. Hello. I feel like over the past three weeks of split screen, um, my tone towards the virus has gone through, oh, like funny <laughs> joke to, oh yeah. my God, this is terrifying <laughs> to, yeah, you and the rest shit, of the world. Like, this is the, a life changing event for everybody. So, yeah. um, welcome, oh welcome to the madness. Welcome to the madhouse. <laughs> we're is, in it now. Say it. We're here, here we go. And we're safe in our respective zones and we are podcasting, which is a pretty, pretty safe. safe thing to do. Are yeah, we safe? I, I don't know. I mean, I have to go outside and like go to the grocery store and stuff. I don't feel like oh, I'm well. ever safe. Yeah, but not to podcast. We all have to go to the grocery store. Yeah, well, I right mean, now we're safe as long as nobody came and like coughed on my microphone, which hopefully nobody right? did that. That's true. Microphone could definitely be kind of germy. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's terrifying, especially, I mean, for me, having a child, a five-month-old, even though I know that it doesn't really affect children so far, yeah. it's still terrifying, like every sure. single day. Welcome to everything for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, right? Welcome to the, yeah. well, <laughs> at least the, mo- hopefully the re- most of the rest of my life won't involve the pandemic um no but, but yeah still worrying for your child other dangers but yeah my wife is taking her to daycare every day on the subway because the daycare is in her building and man sure. it's just terrifying every single day it's bad news. um and um and my mom has uh respiratory problems so i'm like terrified for her she's had Yikes. pneumonia in the past and like there's all sorts of reasons to be terrified but let's not get into that <laughs> let's talk about video sure. games let's be an sure. escape distract from this everybody for world. for a little while at least until our second news segment <laughs> Which is about the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, that's true. When we talk about E3, we'll have to mention it. But but that'll be... We won't that's, get into that's the a few minutes gruesome from details. We, we of, have yeah, a now, for a while. <laughs> video um, games. Uh, Maddie and I are both playing a perfect uh, coronavirus escapist game. But we are. Kirk, why don't you actually go first? And then Maddie and I will talk about all the beautiful, the beautiful game we are playing. 
Sure. Um, I am playing three different things, which mm. I Go should on. probably mention <laughs> is against the thing, you know, that I've been sort of sticking with this early part of the year. Against your mantra. Yeah, it's a mantra, but you know, it's it's more of a, it's it's like a way to try to experience games that mm-hmm. really works well. A resolution, well. perhaps? No, well, yeah, but like you can't stick with it all the time. Like it's just not something that you can do year round because especially not if you host um, a video game <laughs> podcast, mm. but it's a thing that is really good for like the early parts of the year and the times in the summer when it's kind of quiet. It's nice to try to play one game at a time. Like that's when I typically do things like beat Dishonored, Death of the Outsider or The Evil Within 2 or one of those games that, you know, I, I had been putting off Bethesda and really games. wanted to play. Yeah, Bethesda games. Exactly. <laughs> so that's why I play Bethesda my Bethesda games. games. That's yeah. actually the mantra is one Bethesda game at a time. That's, uh-huh. that's, I should have specified play. earlier that um, that's what it's really about. No, so um, I've been playing a few different things, partly because I, I got an early code for Neo 2, which I have been playing. And I know that Heller Alexandra reviewed for Kotaku. I haven't read her review. She said it was awesome. I believe she yeah. said it's great and difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the, the gist of it, but haven't read it. But I do recommend people read that since she's played the whole game. And I've only played like you know, a handful of hours, a couple of bosses. I don't know how far I'll get because it's hard and it takes a lot of time, which won't surprise anybody. But I'll talk about that game a little bit. So Neo 2, it is a Team Ninja Souls-like. It's the sequel to Neo. Does anyone need me to tell you that? Um, <laughs> have either of you played Neo? Yeah. Nope. No. Not, so Jason, you played a bit. I played like just an a, hour. Just yeah. a bit. Oh, okay. Like the first, that's even... That's not anything. even That's, the hard stuff. <laughs> well, Neo is weird. The first Neo starts in this medieval castle that looks yeah. like a really boring Souls game. And it's like, what is this game? This sucks. And then <laughs> the next level is in this beautiful, You go to your character goes to Japan. And then the whole game is like you're fighting through, you know, Sengoku period Japan with all these amazing, um, you know, uh, yokai demons everywhere. And it's super colorful and incredible looking. And there's a million weapons and you're fighting ninjas and doing all this amazing stuff in amazing settings. There's magic. It's just the opening level does not at all give a sense of the game. I actually bet that oh, a lot of weird. people... I didn't even know that. Huh. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful, amazing looking game. Because I, I played the opening level and I figured it was like, oh, okay, this is like Sekiro-ish. This is going to be like Souls-ish with Samurai, etc. Et it, it is. It is Souls-ish, but it doesn't look at all like this like weird, rain-drenched, crappy Tower of London level. I don't really... That was a bad call. The second game starts immediately. There's like a beautiful, you know, rose petal tree, or like the pink tree with like petals falling on the ground and you're like mm, fighting the amazing... The cherry blossoms, yeah. yeah. Cherry blossoms, yeah. So, um, yeah, this game... Uh, it is very much like Neo. Uh, it it does add some new systems, and it's really good. It made me remember how much I liked Neo. I played a lot of Neo. I didn't finish it, um, but I I got pretty far in it. And then it just you know, it, like all of these games, it just takes a lot of time. And there comes a point where I'm like, I don't have time. I just can't put in the other <laughs> forty hours. Neo in particular, and the sequel. This appears to be true of as well. Really is designed for people who want to play a shitload of it. Um, there's a ton of new game plus stuff. This was a game that I believe with the first game there was DLC that came out. And if you wanted to uh, get the most out of the DLC or even maybe enjoy it or play it, you, you were kind of expected to have done an entire New Game Plus playthrough and to be leveled to that point that you could then hang with the right. DLC. I remember that. I remember Steven was complaining about that. Right. Yeah. So that happened to Steven. It's like only for Heather and players like Heather to yeah. play. <laughs> right. And I've been reading the Neo Reddit just because I was looking for build information and stuff and tips. And people, I mean, the people who love this game totally do that. They play... Sure. 
really they play the hell out of it and they master all the weapons and they go through it again and again and again um so, so it it's sounds like, like neo 2 is more of the same is that fair to say yeah yeah it is though it's in a way i think it's there's some interesting stuff to talk about only because i haven't played the first game since i guess uh sekiro and a couple other things i don't remember when the first game came out but it was a few years ago and I really liked it, but now I've got a better sense of just the whole Souls. First game came out in February 2017. 2017, okay. And that was a game, I remember writing about it. I was writing about it for Kotaku because nobody else was even playing it. It wasn't really super on our radar. And the first game was in development hell forever. It was announced as a completely different game. I talked about this on the show, I think, mm-hmm. but um, like back when it came out. But in the early 2000s, it was announced and it was totally different. Right. And right, I, like right, Team Ninja right, wasn't yeah. even making it. And then wow. they came in and it was going to be like a maybe a Ninja Gaiden like game. I can't really remember the particulars. And then they totally threw like everything out. And, like, it was like Koei Tecmo was going to make it like a Dynasty mm-hmm. Warriors game. Yeah, yeah, it was so different. And then it was like, oh, no, wait, it's going to be a Souls game because Dark Souls came out and the and the developers played it and said, oh, well, what if we made it like this? So the first Neo wound up being really wildly great considering the fact that it had been in development for this insane amount of time, like 15 years or whatever. This one feels much more like they took all the stuff that they made and they've kind of refined it and focused the game a little bit more. But it's largely the same. Yeah, like this, it's in the same way that Dark Souls 2 feels, you know, like it's more Dark Souls in a way that people will like. I don't know if Neo 2 does what Dark Souls 2 did, which is sort of change some fundamental things that people won't like. I'm kind of curious what those players on the Reddit who've played the game multiple times when they play the sequel, sort of what they'll make of it. But for me, it's it's really fun and a fun reminder of, of how this game works. There's a couple of systems that I think are really cool, and it's cool playing it after Sekiro because I was sort of expecting that I would not be feeling it as much after Sekiro because they are similar time periods, you know, fighting ninjas and samurai and, and yokai monsters with a sword. But I would say, so the comparison I would draw is that Sekiro is to Bloodborne what Neo and Neo 2 are to Dark Souls. So Sekiro is the simpler stripped down one. And it's actually much more stripped down than Bloodborne. This is just, you know, a a comparison. Like the comparison is the comparison. The games are actually very different. Um, what it, like, it's a it's an SAT question, but yeah, I'm in really Sekiro, you, to an SAT analogy. <laughs> so in in Sekiro, you just have a sword and you have your prosthetic arm, and so you get some special abilities. But you're fighting with a katana sword the entire game. Where in Neo, there's a bunch of different weapons, and they've added a couple new ones. Each weapon has a huge skill tree. You can do crazy different builds. You can be fighting with like a massive sword. There's a new switch glaive that's kind of like a bloodborne weapon. It like converts into a long scythe or a short weapon, and you can like transform it in the middle of combos and stuff so i feel like your analogy is lost here because bloodborne has a ton of weapons too yeah well so no but i but the analogy but is, the is bloodborne analogy? to dark souls is is um bloodborne to dark souls is the same complexity. as sekiro to neo right. because dark souls has way more weapons than bloodborne and dark souls also has character builds and magic you can do like completely you have bows and arrows and stuff where bloodborne it's pretty much melee weapons and you have some kind of ranged thing for counters Sekiro, you know, is like very simple too. You have one kind of sword. Neo, there's what, like 13 types of weapons. Each one leads to a totally different build. You can do magic. You can do ninjutsu abilities. You can build nut, like really wildly different um, um, builds. And you can get really, really into the like nitty gritty of all these stats and leveling up your character and like building them where Bloodborne is just much more simple. So it's kind of a good way to think of it is that it is much closer to Dark Souls. It has a stamina system where Sekiro didn't, It's which is a huge difference. There's a really cool thing that I'd forgotten where once you level this ability up, when you use a lot of your stamina, 
you time a dodge right after doing a bunch of attacks and your chi, your stamina replenishes a lot faster. So you get in the whole rhythm of fighting. That's really good. I mean, it's just the fighting in this game is incredible. It's, it's super, super well done. I'm like playing with the spear this time. I don't know. I like it. But I, I could go on. There's a bunch of particulars. Oh, you could have you? new. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I won't go on, on that much longer, but um, <laughs> like, you know, it's whatever. Both of you haven't played it. Um, I'd say people should read Heather's No, review. I'm curious about it. I'm very curious about it. So would you recommend it to people who are like, I mean, A, with Ghost of Tsushima coming and Sekiro last year, some people might be like ninja'd out, samurai out. Samurai um, out. How would you, like, would you recommend it to people? I, yeah, I would recommend it to people who want a challenge because it is okay. hard. Um, the thing, so a couple of other differences, I guess. One is you, you are a yokai. Your character is at least part demon. And so you now have all these new abilities that you get from killing demons. This is actually a thing that was in Bloodstained as well, if either of you played Bloodstained or Troll mm-hmm, the Night. Mm-hmm. It's also in Kirby. <laughs> yeah, you would kill demons in that game and you get a demon core and then you power up their, uh, power up whatever special abilities that you get. Uh-huh. So it's like you kill enemies to steal their abilities. You do that mm-hmm. in this game Also too. exactly like Kirby, yeah, go right. on. Right, it is right. kind of Kirby, you're right, it's true. It's a, uh, it's, Did it's you guys just miss me just saying that? I heard like, it. I heard it no, yeah, and I repeated was picking up what Maddie was picking up. Okay, go on. Um, <laughs> so you you now have this new, new whole system of these super moves that you can do. There's a new counter system built around it. It's basically Neo combat with this new thing layered on top. And it's really Neo cool. Neo means you Kirby, do these, is what mm-hmm. you're saying. Um, yeah, you know what? This is making an appeal to me because I, I love Kirby. <laughs> right, right. You, are, you basically become, it. you can play as a, a pink creature with infinite power that, that just absorbs. <laughs> From Planet Popstar, I hope. Yeah. Yes, from the well, naturally, of course. That's what Neo's <laughs> always been about. Yeah. Um, it's cool. You do a lot of cool abilities uh, cool. To, to do that. In so Neo too, and it's out this Friday, correct? I think it's out this week. The, yeah. The only other thing I want to talk about with this game is the character creator, because in the first game you played this kind of off-brand Geralt of Rivia guy, mm-hmm. who was kind of a non-character to begin with, mm-hmm. and in the sequel you can make your own character, male or female, and the character creator in this game is amazing. It's one of the most amazing character creators I've ever used. It's funny that just last week we were talking yeah, you're about you know, the aesthetics. <laughs> Maddie and I do not care. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> listeners might. So. Listeners, yeah. yeah well, no, hey, listeners guess what? Will be People really listen to this, this show and I'm not just telling you guys. No, um, no. Any I'm listener just listening out to this. that it's funny after last week's conversation where we established that we don't care. I'm not saying you shouldn't explain this because you should definitely explain it. Okay. Um, well, I will. So the it, it is it is amazing. You can it's like remarkable how well done it is. How many options they give you to make like I, people even in the beta. I was looking on the Reddit. We're making like perfect replicants of just every character. This is a guy made Solid Snake, and he looks exactly like Solid Snake. <laughs> so you can just play this game as Solid Snake nice. um, or Siri from The Witcher. A bunch of people are making Siri, which is cool. Or Siri from your phone. <laughs> and the thing that I do value about this game is that. Um, they let you change how your character looks at any time for no cost. You can just go to your dojo and like redesign your whole character, which is nice because a lot of times in games like this, you know, you're going to be playing it for, if you were really into this game, you know, hundreds of hours. Mm-hmm. It sucks when you make a character and you're like, they're okay. And then a couple hours in, you're like, their nose is a little fucked up, isn't it? I kind of <laughs> fucked up the nose. Now I have this weird like hawk nosed character for the next hundred hours. In this game, it's like, whatever. You want to suddenly play as a dude when you were playing as a woman for the first part of the game? Fine. You want to like completely <laughs> change your hairdo? Fine. Fine. Like if your character gets like harder <laughs> through the story and you're like, like now they have like a mohawk and you know an eye patch. <laughs> Fine, just go do it anytime you want. That and that's rules. it's very cool. Like I wish all games just would let you do that. Like just totally change the look of it. Like who cares? Just let us change it. So, anyways, it's a good game. I can't play too much more of it just because it. Every you're new playing too many other get, things. 
<laughs> that's really part of it is like and when it's just every new ability you get you're like sweet i got a new thing i'm really good now and then you just come up then the next thing is hard as fuck and you get totally stopped and it's like oh my god i'm gonna have to spend an hour beating this boss and then the next boss and the next boss so it is it is just endlessly challenging which i think a lot of people will really like um that's not a knock against the game it's just a knock against my ability to to stick with it for many more weeks so end of neo 2 section of what i was talking about i will briefly say i'm still playing kirby planet robobot i still really like it um i like that the bosses in that game are just kind of cute and then I they can are just sort of they're beat adorable them. it's funny that this game is so um not difficult and yet <laughs> it's very complex there are a lot of moves mm-hmm. when you get i i got the bow and arrow mm-hmm. i think it was the archer power up and there's a whole move set like you go up and he shoots arrows up and they fall around in like an aoe mm-hmm. attack and you can charge up and you can shoot like downward diagonal yeah. i was like this is like a really complicated move set when given that the game you can just run through just mash- destroying everything it made me think are these abilities from old kirby games that are just carried through a to lot the of new them are one? yeah a lot of them are classic kirby abilities but then in each game they'll introduce new abilities that have never been in a right. previous kirby game so you have this like huge foundation of recognizable enemies that you can swallow and you're like oh yeah i remember these guys they're going to give me this ability but Mm -hmm. then you've also got like completely new enemies in this game that give you like sort of robot themed abilities that i don't think are in any other kirby game which is what's also i think the idea is that you should be able to just run through the level if you want but also the complexity comes from finding the code pieces and whatnot the stickers yeah and and usually you have to use all the abilities in order to find those code pieces and like use them wisely as opposed Mm -hmm. to just blasting your way through which is cool. Yeah, it makes me think of Pokemon in the way that a Pokemon game will carry over all these Pokemon from past games. And if you've never played one, it's like, holy crap, look at all these mechanics. Look at all of these little Pokemon. Mm -hmm. Um, Same kind of thing here where I'll just get a thing and I'm like, this is a... I, this is like a whole, I could play a whole level just with this ability, but it's one of five that I could have gotten in this level. So it's cool to just be always discovering that. Um, I'm still having fun. It's with why that. he's such a good smash main, Jason, is because you can swallow people and just have endless different kinds of abilities. Yes. And it works that best. way in Smash? I was actually yes, curious about yes. that. Yes. Wow. That's why Kirby's so great in Smash, because he can swallow uh, other people and steal Have their you powers. not played Smash? He I has. Played Smash, we talked about like, it on here, but yeah. there's so many characters in Smash yeah, Ultimate, Kirk, that I, I really that can't blame yeah, you for yeah. not having tried Kirby That's, that no, much. No, that I understand. Yeah, I don't know the particulars yeah. of every Smash character. Yeah, well, my, there's like the a The Smash billion. that I played the most is 64, where there are only like eight characters. Right. So you don't... <laughs> it's way easier to keep track of <laughs> yeah, everyone Yeah, so you don't actually have one. to right. keep track of a hundred like, characters like you do in Ultimate. Ungodly number there are now. Ultimate yeah. is ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> and all of them are Fire Emblem characters somehow. Yeah, at this point. So the last thing that I've been playing is Black Mesa which reached its 1.0 release, I think, last mm-hmm. week and came out. Um, and that's amazing. Getting yourself prepared for Half-Life VR. Uh, yes. And then for myself to win our bet and for everyone, to, for us all to play Half-Life 2 next year. Right, of um, course. Black Mesa is a remake of Half-Life 1, correct? Or what is it exactly? Yes. So Black Mesa, speaking of things that have been de- in development since the early 2000s, Black Mesa started as a fan project to update the original Half-Life using the source engine that was used on Half-Life 2. They began working on it in 2005, which was a year after Half-Life 2 came out. Um, And they've been working on it ever since. And it reached like a kind of early access launch in 2016 or something like that. And they had everything done except for Zen, which is in the original Half-Life when you go to the alien planet. Spoilers. (laughs) Um, And it was always kind of this maligned section of Half-Life. It's weird. It, You know, the the thrill of Half-Life is really like kind of like control control if you played black mesa you would see where control got a whole lot of its ideas from 
because you spend a whole bunch of Half-Life making your way through this uh, you know, sort of cavernous, mysterious government facility mm-hmm. and, you know, just finding new sections and like crazy things are happening in each one and you have to just get from point A to point B as this massive paranormal, you know, disaster is underway. And then suddenly you're on an alien planet where you're kind of jumping and flying around and everything is just very different looking and you have to fight, a, I think, a big boss or something. It, just, it doesn't really feel as cool as the rest of the game. So they had been working on Zen, the people making Black Mesa, who are called the Crowbar Collective. And this is just a collective of... I don't know if they're, I mean, they're selling it now because they got a license from Valve at some point. So they're making money off of this and Valve gave them permission. So it now has like, you know, the head crab sound effect is the actual sound effect. It's, they're fully using stuff with Valve's permission. And it's for sale cool. on Steam. Wow. And, I didn't know that. And that might yeah, be like the either. first time ever that anyone <laughs> has, has done that, that a company is allowed like modders to sell their stuff officially. I mean, Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike yeah, is another super, example. super but, wild. Yeah, I guess that's true. But that Valve bought like hired those people, the counter yes, people. Yes, but it's still so a similar a different. deal. That's also oh, did Valve hire the Black Mesa people? Like, are they no? They're still the Crowbar Collective, but I don't know the particulars of whatever huh. deal they signed. I'm a, interesting. I would. I. I don't. It wouldn't surprise me if Valve gets some percentage of this. I mean, it's. Yeah, it, it is a remake. No, they must. Fair. Yeah, they must. Um, and also, yeah. they get a percentage of everything on Steam anyway. So. <laughs> well, yes, that too. Um, but it's so. This thing is amazing. I, that, I'll let me. I don't want to bury that. Like, it is so good. I love it. I'm gonna definitely oh, finish that's this. Awesome. That's really um, cool. It's it's so cool because the original Half Life is a great game. I have tons of fond memories of it. It was the one of the, I played it right after it came out in 19. I think 97 was when it came out. Ding. Hello, Kirk from the future here. I'm editing the show, and I just wanted to say that Half-Life came out in 1998, which was a banner year for video games. I'm going to say 1997 a couple times in this segment, but I meant 1998. Okay, past Kirk, take it away. Bing. I loved it. I like had never played a game like it before. I was really there when Half-Life changed the world, which it really did. And I'll always have these just super fond memories of just various parts of that game. Just the set pieces, the the script, the way that you kind of worked through this roller coaster ride. Just games had never done that before. And replaying Half-Life is still really cool, the original. Like it it doesn't hold up in a lot of ways. It looks pretty dated. It doesn't look nearly as good as Half-Life 2. It's like a quantum leap because the difference between 1997 and 2004 was like when that big 3D processing thing happened. It isn't just seven years. It's like I did an article about this at Kotaku forever ago about No One Lives Forever 1 and No One Lives Forever 2, which I believe No One Lives Forever 1 came out in 2000 and Nolf 2 came out in 2002. And they're crazy different looking. So anyways, if you go back and you play the original Half-Life, it just doesn't look as good. The way that Half-Life 2 still holds up, Half-Life 1, it holds up, but it feels a lot older. This is using, I think it's the Counter-Strike version of the Source Engine. So it looks and plays a lot like Half-Life 2. It's a different game. They have made some changes. They've added new sections and like added some puzzles. There's physics now because in Half-Life 2, you can pick everything up and move stuff around. Mm -hmm. You can do that in this game too. So there are kind of sections where you can throw stuff and, you know, do more interacting with the environment. The world feels and looks like Half-Life 2 more or less, but then the level, the layout and the, the sort of flow and rhythm of the game is pure Half-Life 1. And it's so good. It's just such a cool reminder of how cool Half-Life is. It feels just like Half-Life. It's taking me back. It's really, really fun. Um, I'm loving it. I'm kind of burning through it. It's a very, you know, it's a linear game. You just go through oh, these yeah. sequence of things, <laughs> but in a but in a really great way. And it ah, it just... I really recommend playing it, actually. Like, I know we have this Half-Life 2 thing and there's the VR game coming out, but it, it gives such a cool sense of all of these tropes and vibes and ideas that people have just been borrowing for decades. And uh, is it's it's great. Uh, it's just, it, it gives you a feel for, like, what Valve, 
what a Valve game was when that was new, when that was a thing. Like, oh, this is a Valve game. Okay, it has this certain feeling. And now, you know, there's other people who make Valve games, like Titanfall 2 or something, you know, games that feel Valve-y. And it's cool to go back to the source. So anyways, Black Mesa is amazing. Congratulations to everyone. If anyone listening who worked on that, because I know a lot of people worked it on over the years, like, it's incredible that you all finished it. I think that that's so freaking cool, <laughs> like, just to so work cool. on a project for that long. I can't believe two Half-Life games have been finished in one month. The third Wild. month of the third month of the year. It's pretty amazing. And yeah, it's it's making me psyched for the VR one as well. But that's what I got. Those are my games. I'm done. Is that it? Are you sure you don't have a few more? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kirk, are you know, sure I'm... you haven't been playing Persona Five? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been playing Persona Five, but I want to hear you two talk about it. Um okay, so first of all, real quick, I have a little bit of a dilemma because off and on for the past few months I've been playing Trails of Cold Steel Two, but I just got a code for Trails of Cold Steel Three. And these games are making are these like, too fast. These games are gargantuan bloated mm-hmm. JRPGs. Like even from a JRPG perspective, even like compared to Persona, they're bloated. Uh, and just like full of inane dialogue so i think chances are high i'm gonna skip the rest of cold seal 2 and just like read it on read what happens online and just skip to three because how long did it take you to read what happens online though like is that just its own whole novel that you have have to to watch 20 hours of (laughs) 400 hours yeah um but yeah, I mean, what's what's the shame is that these games like have this interweaving story that is so good. And then I just got an email from someone else who was like, hey, I worked on the fan translation for these other two Trails games that never came out in the U.S. <laughs> and that just came out, too. So I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Meanwhile, oh, I mean, like one in two weeks, right? It's Doom and Doom yeah, and Animal Doom. Crossing on the same fucking day. So, yeah, a great time <laughs> well, to be playing Persona 5. It's a good time 5. to be quarantined. That's, <laughs> that's, that's yeah, so sure. true. That's if, true. If there's one time to be staying at home. Um, so, yeah, let's... Let's talk about Persona. Maddie, you and I are both playing Persona 5 Royal. Um, yeah, which although is, I've never played it before. Yeah, you your have. first time right. playing Persona. Kirk and I have both played through it and talked about it quite a bit on the podcast back in the I day. reviewed Persona 5, I will yes, say. Yes, Kirk reviewed, reviewed it. That for um, it is quite a game. It is quite a journey. Um, actually, I want to hear your thoughts first before I talk a little more Same. about where I'm at. So first of all, <laughs> what part of the game are you up to now? I'm still at the same part I talked to you about, Jason. I'm in the castle where you have to fight against a version of the volleyball coach at your high Kamushita, school. Kamoshida, the worst, and dude. I hate that fucking game. Yeah. Well, well, so you're to supposed be clear, to. you're in the early stages, so you haven't gotten free reign of the castle Which yet. is really funny, because I've played the game for seven hours, but yeah. I'm actually yeah. still in the Long introduction ago. of the game, and I've yeah. barely done anything yet, yep. which is That's incredible. Persona. And the way that this game allows that to even be possible is that there is so much dialogue, and there are so <laughs> many cutscenes that it's kind of like watching a TV show, and I'm not saying that in a bad way at all. That's mm-hmm. completely no, fine. No, it's a school drama. It really is I like a TV show. Enjoy the TV show. It's <laughs> segmented in seasons, also. Well, Kirk and I actually made that comparison a couple of years ago when we first played it, because it's like each. So this isn't a spoiler, but the way that the rhythm of the game works is that there's different palaces, and each palace is like a section, a chunk of the game is like, all right, we're taking on this palace, and then what you'll see when the game unlocks. When you like get out of the tutorial, right, what you'll right. see is that you'll have a deadline, and it'll be like we have to finish the palace by this date. And then every day you can choose what to do, and you can go and fuck around and hang out with your friends and go to bowling or whatever, go play play at the batting cages, or you can start taking on the castle. And uh, doing the other stuff gets you bonuses for the dungeon crawling, and it's all interlocked in this really cool, addictive, really awesome way. Um, but um, the way it's segmented is that like each different palace has its own storyline, and so there's the overarching 
overarching story of the whole game, and then mini stories that are like different seasons of the entire series. So it really is like a TV show. So like every palace is like a season in your estimation mm-hmm. of it? Like once you yeah. defeat a palace, you've like sort of completed a season-ish and yeah, it's well, like you a finish that mini season arc. show. It yeah. tends to line up with character stuff that's happening outside mm-hmm. of the palace. So right. the palace's owner will be an antagonist or someone that is mm-hmm. then related to the characters that you're meeting and the new right. people who are being introduced. And at least for the first maybe two thirds of the game, it's structured that way. Yeah, well, yeah. then, I mean, yeah, things get a, get a little crazy at the end. I mean, they're um, already so, ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not even sure I could explain to you, like, how the magic so, works. I mean, you haven't even started, so you don't even really start unlocking, like, you, you're still unlocking stuff, like, yeah. many, many hours into the game. So I just, on, on my new playthrough, uh, so I guess my second playthrough of the game, I beat the first palace, um, and then... Uh, I st- just started like unlocking stuff. Like, there's this entirely separate dungeon called Mementos that you you explore in over the course of the game, and you unlock that after the first palace. So there's like still stuff that you are gameplay mechanics and all sorts of things oh, that you're yeah. just gradually unlocking. Over I time. can tell because I've barely unlocked any gameplay mechanics because I've barely actually done any battles in this game. Right, you've you've essentially been watching an anime. <laughs> yeah. So amazing. what do you what do you think of the game so far? Or do you feel like you can't really judge it because you're so early? It's like hilarious to me that I could have played seven hours of a game and still be like I'm not really sure what I think Mm -hmm. about it yet like Mm -hmm. that's really funny to me but I I guess I can talk about the story and say that it's it's very soap opera-y but it's soap opera-y in a way that I happen to really enjoy I I can I watch Riverdale and this this show is about that that speed or show (laughs) I just call it a show it's a game this game (laughs) is about that it's been a show so far it's been a show so far um so your character I can. Comp- I called him like a stupider tuxedo mask, which is a reference that Jason doesn't understand, but Kirk maybe does. He just looks kind of like him. He looks kind of like tuxedo mask, but he's a little bit yeah. dumber and less competent than tuxedo mask is, and he's also younger this than tuxedo is anime mask. References, so, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know this, what? Sailor I mean, Moon bears a lot yeah. in common. You with should know who tuxedo persona. mask is. <laughs> like that's maybe because a good thing to know. because it's still like a group of <laughs> <I> teenagers. <laughs> it's a group of teenagers who suddenly get powers, but they don't really know how to use them and sometimes that's somewhat comical but also they are fighting against genuinely scary adults which is also a classic Sailor Moon trope where like Mm -hmm. an adult has power for some reason over your life as a teenager and then that is used as a metaphor and Buffy does the same thing which is the Mm -hmm. comparison that I know you two have used for Persona before and it's a good Mm -hmm. one where like these regular day-to-day teenage problems are or sometimes like very absurd but terrible teenage problems but still problems a teenager might deal with like you know sexual assault or whatever whatever it may be um they're dealing with that but then they're also dealing with it on this like heightened magical and supernatural level where like mm-hmm. in this version of the world you can fight against the adults who are getting you down by using magic in like the astral plane or whatever the heck you would want to use to describe this alternative reality the metaverse. that they can enter yeah the metaverse i can't remember what mm-hmm. it's called in this game because i i don't know it's it's the metaverse i guess yeah it's but di- it's and it's bad. different in each persona game and i get them mixed up yeah, yeah, so I'm so excited. So okay, so so you don't really know how to feel is a is a verdict. Like, I, I mean, I'm enjoying it yet. so far. I don't know okay. if I'm going to make it all the way to hour ninety or whatever hour it is, it's but so I think long, I'm going to make man. it pretty far because I'm okay. already enjoying the first seven hours yeah. pretty well, and it, it's like a little fire emblemy. And I enjoyed Fire Emblem a lot, yes. like the fire whole like planning out your whole day and like reading a bunch of text messages from your friends mm-hmm. and like deciding which friends you want to talk to every day. And there's a calendar, and I don't know if this is something that's only true in Persona Five royal or if it's also the regular game but um the the flashback mechanic is that 
new or is that like the fact that you are being interrogated that it's in media res yeah that's new for okay. persona 5 or a frame narrative i think that yes. part is it cool begins too. in media's res but it's also a frame yes. narrative yeah to get all of our tropes in line <laughs> it just it just adds to it and it adds a mystery element that i think is fun as well yeah so. well so okay so a couple of things so first of all i think if you keep playing you'll wind up getting hooked and you'll be like you know what i just want to see this through although i guess it's possible that you just have no interest in the main story and you give up by the end because the main story isn't as like the, the the overall arc isn't as compelling as like persona 4 which has this great murder mystery that that you're just wondering about the entire time and then finally mm. has this great satisfying resolution um but also there's a lot of like subtle and in some cases very major differences with between Persona 5 Royal and Persona 5. And they've actually fixed some of the things that were really frustrating about the first game. Um, so, for example, I don't know if you've even gotten a chance to notice this yet, but in the original, um, pretty much every single night, or a lot of nights, you would get back to your room and you would want to do something, and Morgana, the cat, would tell you, no, I think we should go to sleep. And they've actually changed that for this game. And that became a meme, basically, that was like, Morgana, stop telling me to fucking go into sleep. I don't remember <laughs> if there was a Kotaku article saying, like, stop telling me to go to sleep, Morgana, but it could have been. It was definitely a Twitter meme, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, they've changed that. So, she he doesn't do that anymore like you are essentially you go to room, your room and then you can actually do stuff at night which already opens up twice as many possibilities for you to like boost your social links and get your stats up and all that other stuff um they also add some dungeon tweaks and some secret areas to dungeons and new mechanics to dungeons and new types of enemies like enemies that will explode when you make contact with them there's also this new shopkeeper and mementos kirk you will understand this many you will not but there's this new <laughs> shopkeeper that kind of adds some some new interesting twist to Mementos, which is this randomly generated dungeon section that could be a little rote in the first game. Um, and yeah, it's a ton. Kirk was making fun of me the other day. I was texting him. He was like, you're going to say it, it almost feels like a new game. And I was like, no, it does not feel like a new game. But <laughs> yeah. um, but it but does. But if you're me, if you're like me and you've never played it before, then it's a this, brand new this game. is the one but if that's you're playing worth this, playing. If you're hearing us talk about this, this these changes, yes, this is definitely the one that's worth playing at this point. So yeah, if you're thinking about getting into Persona 5 for the first time this is the one 100 unless the original is so much cheaper that you just don't want to spend 60 bucks on royal so related to that jason let me ask you something as someone who is annoyed <laughs> at square enix for remaking final fantasy 7 as an episodic game so many years after it came out do you find it at all annoying that so few years after the original persona 5 came out there is now a version with a whole bunch of tweaks and quality of life improvements and additions that's being sold for 60 dollars and you just have to buy it again if you want to play that stuff? It is, yeah, it's terrible. And it's very <laughs> Atlas. And Atlas has done this with all the Persona games. The big difference oh, okay. is that their previous ones have been on portable consoles, like the remade versions. So those mm. helped. And that's why everyone was hoping slash expecting that this would be on Switch. And if it was on Switch, it would be way easier to justify. But yeah, yeah no, it's terrible that, that like people who bought the game first are kind, of, are kind of screwed, especially because so many other companies these days are putting this sort of stuff out through patches and updates to their games, as opposed to like trying to sell it again for yeah, $60. Yeah, like I'm thinking of Divinity Original Sin. Yeah, that yeah, game was an update. Yeah, yes. it seems like that would have been a cool move. I'm a little frustrated by that only because this sounds cool. I don't I'm not going to buy it cuz I'd spent 100 hours playing Persona 5 and I don't need to play it again. Yeah, I can't imagine who would other than me, other than someone I like guess me. hardcore fans. And, I bet yeah, there are a lot of people who players. who played some of Persona 5 and were like, "Oh, I would actually go back to it, but you know, right. I'm not going to buy it again cuz I already bought it yeah. once and didn't finish it." And also, it would just have been nice it's a shame that I can't 
play this with my New Game Plus? Because I would maybe do that. Because mm. New Game Plus in this game is really cool. It gives you, I think it's like a lot of your social abilities are maxed out from the beginning. You carry over that stuff. And as a result, you you just get to see more of the game. You don't have to spend as much time kind of trying to go eat ramen to get your personality up or whatever. Yeah. And like, and I really like that aspect of it and would love to do a new game plus with also knowing that there's going to be like a new dungeon and new content. That would be really cool, but I can't do that. Instead, I would just have to buy the game again and beat it again to get to a new game plus mm-hmm. to then play it again. Like, come on, no way. Yeah. And that feels like a missed opportunity that bums yes. me out a little bit just because I, I would have maybe done that. I will say I would 100% not buy this. I'm only playing it because Atlas provided me with an early review code so I could write about it and talk about it on the show. I would absolutely not spend $60 to play Persona 5 again. But because I got a copy, I'm very much enjoying playing Persona yeah, yeah, 5 yeah. again because it's so much fun to be in this world yeah. and the vibe is still incredible. The music, the music. and the coffee and the curry the and everything about good. it and the style. Maddie, how awesome are like the little menu flourishes and oh, like they're great. that one transition screen when you're like going to school and you see all the people on the subway in silhouettes. It's oh yeah, so much I cool love it. Or like right game. after a battle when you're like walking in slow motion yeah. into your oh, stats man. field. Like I love that so little good. animation and the music sting that they play there. Like there's so, there's so many little stylish flourishes that the game does. I've been playing in Japanese, and the Japanese voices are really good, too. Oh, but you don't get DC Douglas as Kamoshida. He's so good. <laughs> well, mm, I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I love playing his... in Japanese. I don't know Japanese. So yeah, I like the voice acting. This team, the like Persona 5, that trio of the director, um, character designer and composer, are they've been on like all of these games and there's such a there's so much confidence in this game that was the thing I'm like looking back over my review that freaks me out about this game more than anything is how just it just bounces off the screen at every moment it's like just Mm. this constant thing and the rhythm is just really seductive it is a good game if you're kind of trapped at home and Mm -hmm. you need to play it yeah it's a perfect game for quarantines it really is it's like it's very low impact too like you you don't have to put a lot of thought into it at least not so far I know the battle system gets complicated because I actually looked that up because I was like is this whole battle system gonna have like nothing happening in it so I like looked up at some articles Mm -hmm. online just to see what the battle system would become and I was like okay cool like I think I might eventually at least enjoy some of this but well have you it's also like, who cares? You can just play a game where nothing happens. You just click on things and like, that's fine too. <laughs> Have you gotten to the point where you can talk to enemies yet? Like knock them down? Yes. And talk to yes. Them? I recently got that and that's very fun. And you can yes. like suck them into your mask and, and get mm-hmm. bonus personas. And yeah. everyone is amazed so, at the fact that you can do that. And I don't that you're remember Ash Ketchum, is... Persona Collector. <laughs> I don't remember if this was in the original, Kirk. Maybe you do. But now, like, each of the personas will have a personality, like calm or sleepy or whatever. Yeah, that was and Morgana original. will tell you, yeah, that he'll mm-hmm. tell you, like, this is what you should say to them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that system then, always felt a little half-baked to me, but it, it's cool that it's there, but it, it well, never totally... Well, the problem totally... is... The the English is still pretty clunky, and that's even more the case in the sure. persona interactions, where the English can be really clunky. Sometimes you'll be picking dialogue, and you'll pick what you. Oftentimes, you'll when you're in interactions with people, you'll get points above someone's head based on how good and a dialogue option you choose. Like if they're happy with it, right, but because right. some of the translations are so wonky, there's really it's really just there's like, like room a for dart interpretation. Like yeah. Hoping, yeah, I feel like I've already hoping experienced that from both sides. Where like I'll pick something that I think is polite and people will react as though it's not or I'll like pick kind of a dickish response and people will be like oh thank you mm-hmm. so much and I'm like I don't mm-hmm. I don't know about this dialogue because like they wanted to hear it or they didn't yeah it's yeah. funny I would say the combat the t- combat certainly gets more interesting though 
I do kind of compare it to Fire Emblem, especially the most recent one. I prefer the type of combat that Fire Emblem is doing, a sort of positional tactical combat, to what Persona is doing, a sort of turn-based, go-for-the-weakness thing. I'm not a turn-based JRPG. I'm just not that person. It's why I could barely get through any of those Final Fantasies. But but on the flip side, I greatly prefer Persona's uh, day-to-day stuff, the life sim aspects, to what Fire Emblem is doing in the day-to-day, where, you know, especially in Three Houses, that was kind of their first real stab at giving you a place to walk around and talk to yes. people. Yeah. So they're, you know, maybe, maybe they're playing catch I up. I would but agree with that too because Fire Emblem's UI for that was always such a pain in the butt. Like figuring yeah, yeah. out who you had and hadn't previously talked to and all of that. Whereas Persona mm-hmm. it feels much more naturalistic to walk around mm-hmm. the high school. Like I pretty figure, quickly figured out how the maps worked right. and like how to get from building to building. And I, I don't know. Fire Emblem is kind of ridiculous when it came to it's, that it's just thinner it's kind of it is interesting to think of it as fire emblem starting to get on the same page because in persona also as you'll find if, if you play more of the game you know you'll you'll go and you'll have social hangouts with your friends and then they have individual storylines that progress yeah. as you progress up their social link chain and by the end you learn all this new stuff about them and if you find a you know favorite character you've like really grown and you can like be in a relationship with them and stuff where in fire emblem it's just so much thinner you go to tea it's like really then you just kind of say what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. You don't learn a whole ton about them. And then maybe you like marry one of them at the end or whatever. And like there's like just a series of cutscenes that the game lets you watch at any right. time that show you all of that information. And they're just like buried in a menu that you just mm-hmm. have to know exists and right. like watch them. So you could and imagine like Fire Emblem. As you could imagine to, like, Fire Emblem yeah. kind <laughs> of you getting know, ex- there. Ex- oh, yeah. Ex- yeah, totally. Yeah, extending the systems and, and making it more. Uh, more fleshed out in future games, which would be Yeah, cool. although it's tough with Fire Emblem because they have to allow for permadeath, so they can't yes. really get you attached to too many people, or they can't really put that much into the individual characters um, and what they can do. Right, I because guess, anyone has to be able to die, whereas in Persona, I'm getting the sense that like people may die or leave, but like there'll be a specific story point that leads yeah, to that. Like, it feels very no permadeath in built out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll find that the combat is pretty straightforward in that you're always just like trying to get the advantage on people because it's very easy to die. You're kind of like glass cannons as a party. Mm-hmm. And so you always want to be hiding and like coming and out and surprising them and, and then using strategic. all the weaknesses, taking all their weaknesses. Do they change it in Royal so that if your protagonist dies, you don't lose the battle anymore? Am I making that up? Did I like have a fever dream? No, I think that's still true. Ugh, I hate that. Rule. Uh, well, I told Maddie it was true. I don't know for sure. I, I think that's still yet. true. I feel like I remember a, a pop okay. up telling me not telling to die. That. I that seems right, but that's yeah. possible. Speaking of JRPG combat tropes that I hate, um, and they give you a grappling hook now, so you can uh, so you can like fling your way up to like secret entrances and stuff, and so you can find all these. They have these thing called, um, I think they're called like will seeds or something like that, and they're inside of each dungeon, and there are three of them in each dungeon, or more, maybe more than three. I'm not sure. There were three of them in the first dungeon, um, mm. and if you collect them all, you got an item. Um, and then something else I really like, Maddie and Kirk, is that Kirk and I have talked about this, but Maddie, for your own knowledge is that what you'll find is once you start once you get out of the tutorial once you get out of the intro <laughs> the, the 10 hour tutorial once i've completed rhythm, it <laughs> um it's almost like your character's sp like their points of these for magic and stuff are essentially their energy levels and when you you get to a point where you're like spelunking you're exploring the dungeon and finding stuff and beating enemies and eventually you'll find that your characters are all out of energy and you'll be like damn it i wanted to go more but now i gotta go home and rest for the night unless you have like coffee or energy drinks and then you can 
can use that to restore your SP. And it, it kind of, it really feels like you're doing this whole like, all right, we're we're adventurers during the day, yeah, but we yeah. can only last so long. It has a really good rhythm to it. And yeah, I'm curious to to hear if you actually uh, stick how with far it. I so, get. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk see. more about this, and <laughs> and we'll see. We'll have to see if we can get Kirk to want to play it again. That'll be the, no. the real trick. <laughs> I can tell you how that's going to end. All right, why don't we take a break, and then we will talk about E3. Hello, I'm Melissa Kirsch. And I'm Alice Bradley. And we're the hosts of Lifehackers podcast, The Upgrade. The Upgrade is a show about all of the ways you can improve your life. That means how to be happier and healthier and more successful and more productive and just generally better in every way. We talk about stuff like sex. Very few people are like, please jackhammer me for another 45 minutes. Psychedelics. You don't just go on the diving board when you're five years old and jump in the deep end because that would be traumatic. And psychopaths. Giving you exactly what you need or want without maybe you being aware that you want it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Kirk, Maddie, we are now entering a year without E3 for the first time in, I believe it's been 13 years since E3 was last canceled in favor of E4 All in Santa Monica, which was kind of the weird, um, like, mm-hmm. experiential thing. Um, and now there is no E3. And uh, who would have thought that it would be because of a global pandemic that we would not be able to have the year's annual video game convention? Um, so I guess, first of all, we should talk about the most important part of this conversation, which is, has my <laughs> prediction been fulfilled? You want to talk about this first? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the most important let's, thing. Let's do yeah. that. I think this is the most important thing to talk about. <laughs> okay. I'm fair. prepared. I've got thoughts on my this. My prediction was that Sony and at least one other publisher would pull out of E3. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clearly specific language. Is, everybody is pulled out of yes. E3. Okay, Global language well, is Sony will skip E3 once again, as will at least one major publisher that attended E3 in 2019. Okay. Okay, so here's here's the counterpoint, Jason. And then, yes. and then Kirk, you can present if you also have a counterpoint, which I'm sure you do. What if there's a situation where, where a virtual version of E3 happens... And publishers are still doing presentations at it. Right. Well, so and in that, that case, would functionally mean that E3 is happening and that there was an E3 to pull out of. Right. How would that Well, so then I would prediction? win if just one major publisher decides not to do it. Right. Does right? that, I mean, we so, can but, say but that. that does mean that your prediction has not yet been won if that's sure. the criterion that we yeah, use. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Kirk, Kirk what thoughts? were you going to say? No, that's my main thought is that I think we, this is something that we just we're going to have to educate at the end when we're doing all of them, Got it. especially because if uh-huh. it doesn't wind up, if it doesn't wind up coming down to this question, like whether yes. you win or lose, that's one thing because there is this idea there. I think that there is a sort of a semantic legalistic argument over a publisher skipping E3 when mm. E3 itself does not exist. And whether <laughs> the prediction was that they won't go to E3 or that, you know, it's not, is it not in the spirit of your prediction, which is that a publisher would opt to not go to an existing E3, uh-huh. not that E3 would not happen and thus publishers wouldn't be able to go to it. Right. But like I said, also something we can talk about at the end of the year, because yeah, Maddie, that's a very good point that like, right. but it's just hard to say because hypothetically, like another publisher could have pulled out even if E3 was still happening. Right. So true. I, we could have, I could have been on track. That to means win. you don't get the prediction if that's the well, case. yeah. I mean, well, in an alternate universe, maybe you got the prediction. Yeah, You can't just, be like, well, the possibility of my prediction coming true was removed, thus I should get it. <laughs> That's- well, it's looking like, okay, so so far, just for a little more context here, so when E3 was 
cancellation was announced, Microsoft and Ubisoft both immediately came out and said, we're going to do our own sort of digital event. Um, right. So I would say if one of the big companies that was planning to be there instead is like, actually, we're going to do something in July, like our own press conference in July, right. then that counts as them pulling out. I would agree with to, that. Mm-hmm. If if there is a functional virtual right. E3 that happens in June, important. that yeah. right. is possible to be skipped out on or like do a different event instead of at a different time okay mm-hmm. so sure. let's talk about e3 a little bit so <laughs> sure. what e3 actually is i think what people get confused a lot of the time is they think of e3 as just one thing when it's really two things e3 is two things basically mm-hmm. one is press conferences one is a show and the press yep. conferences are what everyone pays attention to because that's the most exciting part that's when the all most the most accessible games are part most successful people. part that's when all the new games are announced that's when all the new trailers are revealed that's when all the awkward memifying uh, stage, stage <laughs> all, the, all the jackets happen. and t-shirts and jeans combos yeah. Yeah. That, that you could ever dream Phil of. Phil Spencer's t-shirts hinting at studios <laughs> that he's purchased. All of the controllers that aren't plugged into anything being held yes. by mm-hmm. a man on the stage. All of those were great moments. Yes. Which I guess, yeah, I don't know what's worse. Um, a controller that isn't plugged into anything or a live demo that crashes on stage, right? <laughs> Definitely I mean, the former. I love it when they crash because yeah, it means they're really doing crashes. it. Yeah, yeah. That happened yeah. at Baldur's Gate 3 uh, a couple weeks ago. It's PAX. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. So so E three. So that part of E three can very easily be replicated in the way that we're talking about, where they do a sort of virtual show, and they're like, you know what? Okay, e- uh, Ubisoft and Microsoft and Bethesda and Square, and um, I guess Sony was going to pull out anyway. But Nintendo already does digital conferences, so if everyone does like their own sort of Nintendo Direct, it's very easy to see how that could still happen in the same sort of way. Um, and yeah, I think it's safe to say if like that happens for a few companies. But others pull out and go elsewhere. I think that's safe to say that they're skipping like the virtual part of E3. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of things here. First of all, I had heard actually a few weeks ago that Warner Brothers was planning on doing a press conference for the first time, which would have been a, an, a sad, par- ironic twist on my prediction in that a company that doesn't usually do something at E3 is doing it. <laughs> does something but, um, does? I like that additive. this is still somehow all about your prediction. But carry on. <laughs> no, let's let's be clear. This is it's all just, I care about. Let's just about ride this out for this entire conversation um, so yeah warner brothers is going to be there they're going to do they have a lot of stuff to show this year and i think they want to be like we're entering gaming in a big in a big way we're looking right? at us we're warner brothers and like, they picked a great year to do it 2020 the year they would have man they would have it would have been a good year to do you it. got a feel for everybody right i feel that way like um you know like people who are nominated for awards the gdc awards right. they, like just yep. that it could be this year for whatever reason you're like so excited because your big thing is happening after years of work and then yes. fucking isn't I know I do, it makes me it makes me feel for them that's I think they're I think they're doing a digital like pre-recorded GDC awards yeah, thing it's um, yeah, yeah our though. friend of the show Kim Swift was gonna host the GDC awards I was very excited to go yeah. and watch her. friend of the show Matthew Burns was nominated for an IGF award for oh man wow. well so yeah so I think they're still gonna be doing the awards so but yeah, yeah it's but not but quite it's, the same you know what I mean like it still su- it would suck if it was the year you got nominated for a thing it really sucks or even the year you won <laughs> and then you're like yeah, well, I, I wanted to go to GDC and like do our podcast interviews oh, yeah. with people Would've and like go and talk to people on GDC is my favorite E3 is I love going to E3 every year I love like seeing people hanging out with people this sucks all around um, and then it really sucks for the people who are relying on both of these events for business deals so to finish what I was saying before the second part of E3 is the show floor and we typically and fans typically think of the show floor as like the the parts where Nintendo has their big booth and everybody goes and plays Animal Crossing or whatever Metroid Prime 4 
and um, Sony's over here, Microsoft's over here, and they're all in these different places, and you can go around and you wait online three hours to play a game for ten minutes, and it's all just a miserable yeah. experience. But Same the as PAX. Real, but the real E3 <laughs> is behind the scenes, and I've wanted to do this story, a story like this forever, where it's like the part of E3 that you don't see, where I like shadow someone going from business meeting to business meeting, but a lot of the times um, it'll be like, Publishers meeting with retailers, and retailers are like, what should we put in the front of Target this year? Or um, random pitch meetings and executives meeting about some random business deals, seeing console presentations, seeing games that aren't actually on the show floor because they're not actually announced yet. That happens once in a while, too. It's like you'll have builds of games that that nobody knows about um, just being shown secretly behind the scenes at E3. And then I think most importantly is not... so. Indie developers making pitches usually happens a lot more at GDC than it does at E3, although it does happen at E3. But what really happens is just the networking. Like, you're at the Marriott in downtown LA, and you get to meet um, the guy who happens to do publishing deals at Sony, and then you turn around and you're like, oh, hey, it's Phil Spencer. Oh, look, it's Vince Zampella. Oh, look, it's uh, Kim yeah, Swift. Yeah. It's whoever, right? And and just making those face-to-face connections as someone who works in games or wants to work in games or covers games or whatever whatever is just so vital and valuable and it's the amount of damage that is going to happen as a result of this not happening is just like hard to even imagine yeah i do want to interject that you said e3 was two things Mm -hmm. and i was thinking why can't e3 be three things because e3 (laughs) should really be three things because it's e3 and then you said two things which were the press conferences and the show floor and then you said networking so Mm. it is three so e3 is three things well i think e3 is three things in that it's an electronics entertainment Mm -hmm. expo and it's an expo it is all of those things it does count as three things um and yeah so the, and that's not even to like think about the the business that is going to be lost in the surrounding areas and like all the vendors that come in and the security guards and all these other people who are just like the the models who work on the show floor the the booth staff who get hired the actors and the the uh, caterers and all these other people whose lives are suddenly affected who are relying on this kind of income I saw articles like this about South by Southwest and how it's just going to like upend Austin's economy, I imagine the same sort of thing will happen for downtown LA for E3. And it's all just really, really sad. It's just such an unfortunate situation all around. Um, And even though I think it's fair to say that E3 has been struggling and just kind of a mess for a lot of different reasons, this is still unfortunate. I don't think anyone really wanted to see it go. And I don't think anyone really wanted to see it go like this. So yeah, it's it's just a bummer. Are you guys going to miss it? You know... I like E3. I think it's fun. I understand why people enjoy it. They like the press conferences. It's just, you know, your average uh, person who plays video games is into it. To me, this is more than a bummer. I mean, this is a huge, this is really, really concerning because it's a visible sign of all of the havoc that's currently being wreaked under the surface Mm -hmm. of the entire global economy. (laughs) I mean, we're we're talking about this in terms of E3, but like Coachella isn't happening. Like you said, South by Southwest isn't happening. These are all like big public events that like you said, have their own sub economies, but there's Mm -hmm. so much stuff that is even related to those events, even in the way that E3 like is related to video games and deals are done. Like right now, if everyone is working from home, who's making I don't know, whatever, choose your super huge video game that's going to launch alongside the PlayStation 5. Like, yeah. if suddenly they all have to work from home for two months, that's going to change everything, not just, be, you know, delay the game or whatever, but, like, it's going to lead to so much lost revenue, and it's going to, it's really 
crazy and yeah. scary. Well, so studios, this I've been talking to a lot of people about this. Studios are setting up like infrastructure so that their people can work from home and like get on the VPN or whatever. Um, I know Bungie, Bungie just sent everybody home preparing. Yeah, for, I'm sure they're doing their best. But, but it's really difficult to do that, especially if you're yeah. totally used to just walking down the hallway to your, your pal in the cubicle next to you yeah. and like interfacing that way and then suddenly having to work from home. I mean, like I work from home all the time. I'm completely used to it, but I, I didn't used to. And it was a big transition for me to go from working in a newspaper office for many years to working from home all the time like I do now. I can't even imagine like you're used to working in a creative environment with a huge team of people. Yeah, you're very used to in-person meetings, really fast turnaround on Your ideas. And then suddenly you're told like every single person in this office has to work from home, but you still need to ship a game. I mean, I don't see how that doesn't result in delays or potential creative problems. Like it definitely does. And that's putting us like that's just the b- way big studios are affected. Mainly, I'm just really curious and sad about the ways that middle and smaller studios and developers are going to be affected by something like this, not just because of the networking, but because of like just orienting their time (laughs) around these events and planning for Mm -hmm. it and relying on these events to show their games and the whole infrastructure behind these events. Like even if you don't go to them, like even just knowing somebody at GDC who could like take your game or E3 or whatever and like take it with them and, or network on your behalf, like so much of the gaming calendar revolves around E3 that I'm just like, I don't even really know what the calendar looks like now for games like i, yeah, I don't know what that's strange. gonna be like this year it's i think gonna it's gonna be, be really one freaking of the weird. weirdest things we've ever been through i want to just respond to your point earlier maddie and i actually think there's a bright side to all of this which is so um i didn't say this earlier i meant to but i have finished well a rough draft of my book Ninety-two thousand. congratulations um there's still some <laughs> I, I don't even want to call it a rough draft because there's still some writing and reporting that i have to do and one of the reasons that there's still some writing and, re- and fact checking and stuff but one of the reasons there's still some writing and reporting i have to do is because i'm actually writing about this what we're talking about right now and so the book is essentially about volatility and people burning out in the video game industry and layoffs and studio shutdowns and all that good stuff um i'll get more into specifics later on when i like officially announce the book or whatever but one of the things that i've been hearing from a lot lot of people is that the number one reason that people leave the video game industry or cannot stay in the video game industry is not the crunch um, or anything else like that. It's the fact that they have to move around the world every time they want a new job. You are working at uh, Irrational Games in Boston and it shuts down and suddenly you're in Boston and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do here? I have to move to Seattle or San Francisco if I want another job. And then you go to San Francisco and you're working at Telltale and then Telltale shuts down and and you're like, oh my God, now I have to go to Montreal if I want a new job and it's just not a way it's not a tenable way to live your life and that is how the video game industry is set up and for a while now I think there's been a call for the video game industry to support more remote workers and I think if there's a bright side to all this it might be that studios look around and say hey maybe we can actually have some people working remotely at our at our office at our companies and maybe it's actually possible to allow for this because I think that is like one of the the very few solutions that could make for a more sustainable industry if you know that if you get laid off you can get a job somewhere else without having to uproot to your entire uproot family. everything yeah get a new lease and so on and so forth yeah that's, that's a good move point. your kids yeah. out of school yeah it's quite a way to get there i mean hopefully the global economy yeah. can survive the shock of this right. but but if it does then it would um you know it, it, there could be good 
um, adaptations that come in the yeah, wake of it. Yeah, and I feel like another part of that is that a lot of people have felt like E3 should end. Like, we've certainly talked about that on this show before. I mean, this is a very mm-hmm. strange way for that to happen and a sad way for it to happen that will affect the industry probably in a negative way this year, as opposed to, like, a long, slow death, which seemed far more likely in E3's case. Mm-hmm. Like, more was and more publishers... Kind of already in, it was kind of yeah, already in process in some like, ways. Like, more and more publishers pulling out as Jason predicted and, like, yeah. doing their own events and just, like, ever so good. slowly scattering to the four Way winds. to circle it back to the prediction, Maddie. That was good. <laughs> yeah, we hadn't talked about the prediction in a while, so... <laughs> well, just so felt. the other big lingering question, like, the video game industry will survive this. There will definitely be some repercussions and some pain for a lot of people, but, like, games will survive. Yeah. Bobby Kotick's gonna be okay. Bobby will be okay. He'll be fine. Thank Don't God. worry. I know a lot I know of people really have been crying. <laughs> everyone's Bobby. been writing in. Like everyone's saying, what's he gonna do? But he'll be okay. <laughs> Don't worry. We can assure you here on Kajak Supposed that Bobby will be fine. Um so the big question is what happens next year, right? So what happens when a Microsoft or a Ubisoft or a Bethesda or whoever says, Hey, we were able to get our message out to fans in the same way, like maybe even if they decide to do their things a month out from E3, like in July or or August or whatever, maybe they get even more attention and they find their YouTube views are even higher because they're not surrounded by other things. No um, competition. Maybe they yeah. find that they are saving a ton of money and, hey, they didn't actually gain all that much at E3. How many of them say, why would we bother going next yeah. year? Especially given how the ESA is just a mess internally and is having all these issues. Um, before It's worth noting, by the way, Jeff Keighley pulled out of the show. He usually does his E3 Coliseum thing. Right, which right. Is you mean game publisher panels. Jeff Keighley? Is that game is publisher that Jeff Keighley? Yes, noted game. <laughs> and then last week in the time since we last recorded last week's show this uh, their creative director I am 8-bit who was supposed to run the show and like design the show also pulled out and neither of those departures had anything to do with coronavirus it's just signs and signs and signs that E3 and the ESA are just mm-hmm. a, a shit show right so yeah. I think there are a lot of lingering questions and E3 was very quick in their, in their announcement about the cancellation they were like we're still planning E3 2021 but you gotta wonder like at a certain point it's like you you are doing this thing because of inertia you're like oh we have to go to E3 we do it every year and then you get a chance to not go and you look at the cost benefit analysis and you're like wait a minute why were we putting millions into booths there yeah, but that sucks for the small-time developers who get something out of it that there's no answer for those people Mm -hmm. like well, okay, but there is a benefit for them too, which is that having this kind of infrastructure where you have to be at E3 every year costs money and like true, winds up true. rewarding the people who can afford to be there. So there is going to be more benefit to that sort of thing going, like remote networking happening as well. But there's nothing, nothing will ever be the same as like uh, getting a drink with someone. Like talking on Skype will never be the same I as know. meeting someone. Or running into somebody at a crowded hotel exactly. bar. Exactly. Running into a random person, you recognizing can't. someone. Yeah. face and being like oh you're that guy I know on Twitter let's chat mm-hmm. and become friends in real life which has happened to me so many times I mean I've yeah. met so many people that I talk to in the industry just by random run-ins and are like meeting yeah, them same. through friends at E3 so so a lot of that will like that the value of that is impossible to quantify and that is really what we're going to be missing out on um, in so many different ways this strikes me as 
just one more example of a broader trend that's happening across entertainment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got Disney used to be giving their movies to Netflix to stream, and then Disney said, no, wait, actually, we're going to launch our own streaming service. Kind yep. of very similarly to the idea of somebody who used to go to E3 to do their press conference, then saying, well, we're going to do our press conference, but it'll be at the same time as E3, mm. to then saying, well, we're just going to do a press conference whenever the hell we want to, because it doesn't actually matter. Same thing with game companies saying, ah, oh, we're going to put all our games on Steam, because that's where all the games are. You know what? Actually, we're going to launch our own PC store. <laughs> <laughs> because we could just do that instead. Like, yep. I think the kind of atomization of all of these things that used to be centralized, yeah. it appears to me it's happening in so many different places and the incentives are so clear. Regardless of the negative aspects of the ESA or Steam, the positive incentives to atomize and to do your own thing seem so strong that it would not, I mean, it just seems to me that this is going to continue. True. Yeah. Um, one other bright side that I wanted to bring up is that right now is about the time when developers would be getting into crunch for E3 demos, and anything that prevents that sort of thing might be mm-hmm. helpful. Um, you could see them being like, you know, wow, it's kind of nice not having to make that demo. You just focus on finishing the exactly, game. Exactly. Just make the game. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to do this like smoke and mirrors nonsense where you're like, we're just making mm-hmm. this thing to impress. Um, but then again, the kind of other side of the coin there is that a lot of people use a lot of companies use E3 as like a force function to help them make decisions and like yeah. like actually stick to something mm-hmm. and just not having to show your not having yep. that tight that deadline can yep. almost hurt you. But they might still have it if they still have to like do a presentation and that might be accompanied by like a free demo. Like who knows? There sure. might just be a virtual E3 that is a deadline that people yeah, decide. Yeah, I've given stick that to. some thought also. I think a lot of the times companies are just too worried about like like putting out a demo on the internet for everybody to play yeah. would require it to be even more polished than it is when it's just like like if, if someone like, if a developer is just watching and you play only go here yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. the PR person over your shoulder telling you not what mm-hmm. rooms not to go into and is a we've, different we've watched so many de- demos at E3 where it's like you can't even play it like they're playing yeah. it in front of they you they play it for you and yeah. it's very clear that if they t- they know exactly how to turn the camera <laughs> yeah. to make sure you don't see that like gray matter over there or like yeah. they know I mean, if they walk in the wrong direction the game will crash and companies mm-hmm. do live stream demos of their games all the time. I mean, Destiny's been doing that forever. Like every every mm-hmm. game does that. If it's not at E3, they still will do that. So I'm mm-hmm. sure that'll still mm-hmm. be a thing. So they it's might start doing stuff like that as a way to keep themselves on deadline. But if there right, isn't right. E3 as the deadline that everyone has to follow, and they instead invent their own deadlines, that is very different. It changes mm-hmm. That's things. That's true. Yep. Yeah, and it means it can always slip, right? If you're mm-hmm. if you're Bethesda <laughs> and your your prime studio, Bethesda Game Studios, like has this deadline, the publisher can probably accommodate it. Like if you need to, like it'll. It'll get to a point where, yeah, I mean, who knows? A lot of people are going to have to adapt in a lot of other different ways. And um, we didn't even mention that this is a new console year. So, yeah. like, on top of everything else, is it though? We have is these it? new consoles. That's the question. <laughs> it's going to be very interesting. I, a lot of people are wondering, observers, insiders, nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen because nobody knows what the manufacturing lines are going to look like. People are speculating yep. about, like, is it going to be a limited launch? Is it going to be a delayed launch? And who knows? Man, I couldn't even begin to predict what's going to happen uh, this fall because who knows if we'll even be alive by then. <laughs> well, I great hope concluding we will note. Be. <laughs> and on that note, let's take another break and then get into some off-topic stuff. And we are back uh, alive and well. We we were Still. not. We did not catch the virus during the break. Hopefully, I guess it has that we know of. That yeah, we know of, maybe yeah. we did, but symptoms haven't manifested yet. Um, 
did you, Maddie, do you want to give a quick shout out to an article before we start getting into it? Yeah, sure. Um, so Kotaku longtime employee Luke Plunkett wrote an article about how to work from home, which is something that I think a lot of folks listening to the show and around the world will need to know how to do, possibly for the first time ever. There are a lot of really basic tips in this article. It's pretty similar to many other articles of that kind, but I thought it was really well put together and I agree yes, with it, the tips. Yeah, it's good. So good stuff. I recommend there. it. Yeah, Luke has been doing. Luke has been working from home for like over a decade. I don't know exactly yeah. how many years. A lot of he years. He puts many, he puts the years. exact number down in this article. If you're curious, I can't um, remember it either. Oh, I, I don't remember it, but I read it, and it was good tips, especially yeah. exercising. Um, so let's get through some off-topic stuff real quick. I will go first because mine is very short. Um, last week I listened to an episode of Reply All, which is a fantastic <laughs> podcast that I'm sure many of you already know, and I'm sure many of you already saw this episode floating around because it's been raved about quite a bit but it is an episode the latest episode of reply all i believe it's 157 and it is about pj vote who's one of the co-hosts uh gets a message from one of their listeners who has a song stuck in his head but can't find any trace of the song on the internet um and so pj goes on an obsessive curious quest to figure (laughs) out where that song came about and the story gets through all sorts of twists and turns the lead singer of bare naked ladies is involved which it's amazing as a as a unashamed huge fan of the Bernanke ladies I am I'm very excited about that. I mean, there's that, and but it's also just a great mystery episode. It is a great like, mystery. I genuinely was like, I don't know where this is yeah, going to go. No, it was fantastic. Yeah, Twists I had turns. a theory, and I my theory turned out to be false. Um, I was very, very satisfied with the way it ended. It's one of those stories that just like, as a reporter, made me so jealous. I was like, man, I want to find st- like this story. I want to do this story. I want to <laughs> yeah. find stories like this. Um, yeah. And I believe, Kirk, you had a similar experience on Strong Songs? We did. Well, it was funny that just two weeks before this episode, a Strong Songs listener wrote in with a song that he listened to in the car as a child on one of his dad's mixtapes and he was not sure what it was and he completely recreated it himself in some basic recording software and sent it to me and I actually didn't know what it was I heard it I was like I don't know and it wasn't obviously it didn't wind up being this huge amazing mystery with an amazing payoff but it was pretty funny how similar this was and then this story goes to this incredible place and leads to like this really satisfying conclusion that's very Mm. cool I kind of did you see the final twist of this story by the way that um is is i guess a spoiler i don't know if i should tell you i'll tell you after later. the show because there is one more cold twist this is something that pj vote tweeted about if if anyone listening just wants to go check his twitter okay, feed okay so people should listen to the app and then check pj's twitter check feed. his twitter feed he retweeted a thing that is a cool development at the end Got of the story that's cool. really neat that people Got should it. check out okay. but yeah that's an it was an incredible episode incredibly well put together i said 157 before but it's actually 158 of episode 158 of reply all the case of the missing hit the case of the missing hit. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, okay, Maddie, what are you up to in off topic land? Um, so I finally watched the Netflix comedy sketch show, I Think You Should Leave. I watched <laughs> all of it. So good. I think it's really great. It's so it's a really good. short season and it's so it's Tim Robinson, I think is his name, right? Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. worked for SNL for a while. He's actually said that some of the sketches on the show were rejected SNL sketches, which is like <laughs> kind of tragic to me because I thought all of them were so incredibly good. And in some cases, I was like, I don't know why SNL would have rejected any of these. I, <laughs> I feel like all these ideas are really great. But yeah, They're a lot all of the, incredible. the themes of the show is supposed to be like a character 
in a situation where they should leave or someone should leave or like that's the nugget that is used to describe the show but I feel like a better way to describe it is like a variety of social anxiety nightmares that are like elevated to comedic effect where like a person makes a weird mistake in a social interaction (laughs) and then just doubles down and then triples down on it and then like usually there's a a third elevated thing that you would never expect that happens at the end of each sketch where like some other ludicrous thing happens that you can't guess and then that's where it ends and that as a structure for a sketch it turns out is really great so yeah Yeah. i recommend it it's one of the funniest things i've ever seen i cannot recommend (laughs) it highly enough it's incredible it's really strange Um, especially and you will understand some of the gifts you've seen floating around yes yes now i'm seeing a bunch of gifts and i'm like oh i didn't know that was especially the one the the one the one gift that is most common is the guy in the uh the car uh manufacturer there's like a car focus test yeah 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 yeah. that guy's very funny he is incredible it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have to marry your mother-in-law. Kirk, what are you up to? Nice. I watched the first episode of that show. I should watch the rest of it. I just watched you one. You really, really um, should. <laughs> I so also watched a Netflix show, the third season of Netflix's Castlevania, which was really, really good. That nice. show has become one of the best shows on, in my opinion. That's one of my favorite shows now. I keep hearing that. I gotta God check damn. Out. Season three is good. Season two is good. It's great. I mean, anyone listening to this show who is into video games and anime, I'm, I'm guessing if you like the show, you'll like this fucking show. It's, <laughs> um, it's, it's really, really great. So this show um, is an animated series, hand animated. It's made by Powerhouse Studios, which is an animation studio out of Austin. And the people who work on this show, they've made, they've done stuff for video games and some animated shows, but this is kind of their main deal right now. And they are really good. It is one of those shows where there's so much talent happening on this show just visually the directing the voice actors are just incredible it's like um richard armitage is in it he's super good uh the guy what's uh james callis who played um gaius baltar in battlestar galactica he's in it he's alucard um it's great and so i'm not a huge castlevania fan i've played you know some of the castlevania games not a huge fan of the series but you know all you really need to know going in is that dracula is the lord of you know, yeah, it's not like any of the Castlevania games really have a memorable yeah, it's vampires, plot or Well, there is. This is, I think, an adaptation of, I believe it is Castlevania 3. And there are characters. Sypha, the magician, is a main character. I think that if you know Castlevania, you'll dig it. There's a thing that, like, having played Symphony of the Night, Alucard is a character. And there's even a thing with a castle above and below ground that is a neat... It's not. It's not nothing like what happens in that game, but it's a cool. There's a lot of cool little references that if you've played the game, I think you'll appreciate. The people making the show definitely love the games and have recreated it. But man, I could go on and on and on about this show because it's become so great. Um, it's wild that two of the most popular Netflix shows now are video are games about games. Yeah, yeah. Have either of you seen any of Castlevania? I I haven't watched it, but I would like to. I read Heather's article about season three. I edited it actually, and I was like, you know what? I should just watch this show. Yeah, I think you'd like it. It's freaking good. It's really good. I mean, it's got it's great fight scenes. It's really gory and like in a dope way. Like it's just like you're like, oh, like it's a lot of that of just really Mm -hmm. sweet gore if you're whatever into violence. Um, Mm -hmm. It is violent, but it's not like gratuitously exactly. Plus, it's animated, so you know it's fine. And it's it's very (laughs) baroque. No, it's not. It's right. It's well, and so that's. 
that's kind of what I want to talk about. It's very Baroque. It's like very like outsized, you know, it's Dracula waging a war to exterminate humanity. So there's a lot of just this very kind of heavy metal, just monsters ripping people apart and stuff. But then also <laughs> mm-hmm. just amazing fight choreography, amazing art. Um, great music, man. The, the guy who did the music on this show is super good. Um, it was four episodes in the first season. First season is four episodes, half hour long, really, really short. And then the second episode is, eight, or second season, sorry, is eight episodes. They kind of are just one season. So really season three kind of feels like season two. Mm. And I will say my one criticism of season three is they could have used one more episode. The pacing is just, it just needed a little more time and a couple of things. It's still really, really good, but it's a very slow, I think Heather described it right as a slow burn. Yes. It's definitely a methodical thing that's building up. What I love about this show is the specifics. It's so specific. It's so about logistics and practicalities of any given situation. And everything in the show accounts for everything else. It never just glosses over stuff. There are times in like climactic battles where a big new magical thing will happen and everyone will have to adapt to it. Oh shit, that's possible. Okay, we now we have to totally change what we were doing. But so many times there will be a fight and someone will be fighting and they'll drop one of their weapons and then the weapon will fall on the ground and then you'll see it get kicked over to the side and then they'll dodge around and it's all about like can they get the weapon back but then they'll keep fighting and then the fight will end and then you'll see them go pick up the weapon and like put it away and everything is like very accounted for in this way that's super satisfying it's a very like logistically oriented show and man i was tweeting about this um uh, the animation director from season two in season two there is a hold underground that they go into this is a cool little nugget from Twitter. And I was talking about this. I was saying this show has the best logistics. You know, the specifics are so cool. And he's like, one thing that we did that no one will ever notice is in season two, the hold, the Belmont hold goes down into the ground and there's a spiral staircase leading down to the ground floor. I didn't actually know this, but a spiral staircase inside of a tower in a castle is typically set up so that you can defend it. I believe it's you can defend it from the top to the bottom because the invading forces will be coming up the spiral staircase. Right. Makes so sense. they set it up. If you now picture a spiral staircase, they set it up so that as you're going down, because they want your right hand with your sword right. to be out in the air swinging, and anybody coming up, since most people are right-handed, is going to have to be trying to fight with a wall on their right side, which yeah. I never thought about. And huh. he's like, we designed the Belmont hold to be the opposite of a typical one because they're going to be defending it from the bottom from people coming from the top so the show has all kinds of stuff like that that you'd never even notice but that they put thought into yeah because they're underground and they're going to be being invaded from above ground so they're going to be defending going up so instead you would be descending the other way and they're going to be fighting with their right hands out in the air going up I guess that's what you mean by specific (laughs) yeah it's like there's and I never noticed that but the animation director just tweeted at me and he was like here here's one thing that's cool that we did and there's so (laughs) much stuff like that on the show that's very very satisfying and last thing I'll I'll say is this is a very adult show like I said it's very gory and violent mm-hmm. and dark um, it's very very funny the acting is great this is written by Warren Ellis who's a very funny writer and um, the third season is also pretty hot um, it's like <laughs> way more of a of a sex show now like they're like okay we're gonna be animated Game of Thrones we're gonna bring sex in and there are sexual dynamics at play on this show that I've never quite seen on a show before i won't spoil stuff or whatever get into particulars but it it was really i was like whoa this is like they're really just making an adult show it just happens to be animated and i know there are other shows like that (laughs) well like i've been watching full metal alchemist brotherhood and the show actually i think owes a lot to that show i think it borrows a lot from it in terms of the sort of everything is very accounted for and specific Mm -hmm. it's adult in a kind of 
normal plain spoken way just like hardcore shit is happening all the time it's very political and complicated um but man it it's so great i'm so excited to see where they go from here like the third season opens up all these doors it feels a little like avatar to me in the way that avatar starts very small and simple and they just gradually complexify the world and you're keeping up with it they don't just throw a ton of shit at you like the world just keeps expanding um season three introduces a bunch of great female characters which the show was super lacking in the first you know what you would consider the first season, which is really cool. There's like a queer relationship between these two awesome lesbian vampires. Man, it's a it's, all it's right. A- Fine. <laughs> <Have> I sold <laughs> it. It's, a, it's you know exactly awesome. how to sell that. Yeah, you like it too, Jason. Just, you should check it out. This is a TED Talk I, that's specifically yeah, geared at me. Well, I recommend it so highly. So you said it's, season one is four episodes, season two is eight episodes, and three is also eight. Three is ten, and three could have 10. been eleven or twelve, but is still ten. And they're definitely going to so make. So you can more. watch. You can watch all three seasons in less time than it takes you to finish the intro to Persona 5. Yeah, that is actually true. It, you could just watch the whole thing very, very quickly. And it goes so fast. Ugh, it's it's amazing. Everyone should watch it. Oh, man. Great. Should I watch that or The Wire, though? Hmm. Watch that first, because you can watch that in a day. And yeah. then watch The Wire. But you should watch I bet it I bet it's much more digestible than The Wire. The Wire's yeah. very dense. Yeah. We just okay. finished season three of The Wire last night. Oh, Great that's time. the best season. Man, <laughs> Amsterdam. Yep. Oh, man. I'm excited. I am going to watch it. I am going to watch it. In fact, I will say, I will declare right here that by the end of this year, I will watch The Wire. That wow. is exciting. And then we will okay. talk about The Wire more yeah, hold me in the to off-topic section <laughs> if of it's this like, podcast. If it's like October and I haven't watched it yet, I'd be like, Jason, oh, what the fuck? We'll bring like, it up. Get the pledge. A solemn pledge. Um, Great. Especially because you're rewatching it so we can talk about it fresh and then Kirk will want to rewatch it. That's make me want to rewatch it. That will make me want to rewatch The Wire. It's the Persona 5 of TV yeah. shows. I'll take any It's not excuse. at all. It's nothing like you No, know, it's not very <laughs> much Maddie, have you watched The Sopranos? No, I should if watch If I watch it. The Wire, will you watch The Sopranos and then we can talk about no, that No, no, you too? can't make a pledge and then start making deals yeah, on what? it. This is ridiculous. I'm you, saying, had to, no, you, had no, no, no. you had to start with to that. Be clear, to be clear, my pledge is unrelated to this. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that my pledge okay. is con- contingent it. upon anything. I'm just saying it would be a fun thing for Maddie to do mm-hmm. also. It, it might be fun. It might be fun. I've considered watching The Sopranos my many times. My pledge still holds whether or not Maddie watches The Sopranos. Got it. Fair got enough. It. Um, but I know every episode of that show by heart, so we could talk about it forever. Um, all right. Why don't we say goodbye? But first, Kirk, your music pick of the week. Yeah. Time for a music pick. Um, last week saw the passing of a jazz legend. The piano player McCoy Tyner died at 81. He was a legend. He played piano with John Coltrane and John Coltrane's quartet. That's probably what he's most famous for. He had a really distinct style and he was kind of the sideman, like the most influential sideman ever in jazz. He he did his own stuff. The music pick is from one of his records, but his work and that quartet, this is like the quartet from A Love Supreme and, you know, the kind of classic impulse years of John Coltrane to any of the jazz nerds out there um, with with uh, Elvin Jones on drums as well, like the, as the two sidemen in that group that really kind of stood out. Um, I think Jimmy Garrison is the bass player. He was great too, but it's really all about Elvin and uh, McCoy. They were great. McCoy was amazing. I got to see him play once in the 90s at some jazz thing or something. But anyways, he was a legend, and I wanted to pay tribute to him with this music pick. So this is actually from a 1995 record of his, not something with Coltrane, though everyone should go listen to that stuff too. And this is just him on piano. The tune is called Blues Stride. And I get the feeling listening to it that they literally just had the tape rolling, and he just sat down and played a blues, and just just improvised and kind of just played. And so it's, yeah. it's such a joy. It's just him improvising for like a few minutes and then he just ends it it's so cool he was so amazing so here is a clip of blue stride by mccoy tyner this is from his album infinity from 1995 
Man was a legend. Rest in peace. Great. Some good blues. Some really good blues. It. Yeah, he um, can play, man. He was so good. All right. So, Kirk, Maddie, I think it is time we bid each other adieu. I think it is. We bid one another. Is it one another? Yes. Yeah, one another, not Who's each other. It's we bid one another adieu. One another adieu. Adieu to both of you. Adieu. Farewell. Goodbye. And of course, bye. Kotaku Split Screen is the official podcast of Kotaku.com. It's produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit mixed podcasts and also wrote and performed our theme song and other music. You can find us on most popular podcast services, and we hope you'll leave us a review if you like what you hear. Find old episodes at kotaku.com slash splitscreen. Email us at splitscreen at kotaku.com. <laughs>